0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Gracious God, we pray that you might give us eyes to see, ears to hear and minds to understand your Word written for us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, can someone tell me, where's the best place to find a spouse? Don't worry, I'm not asking for myself, but where's the best place to meet someone today? Where's the best place to meet a husband or a wife? Now, I know that some of you here are childhood sweethearts, so maybe you met in primary school or high school. I also know for many Christians, a church or a university campus group is the place to meet someone. And more recently, I've noticed the rise of the dating app. That seems to be the place to be. There's coffee meets bagel. Now, who's the coffee and who exactly the bagel is is still beyond me. Uh, there's Bubble, Bubba, Bumble, the, the friend one. And of course, there's the hinge. Hinge? The hinge. Well, if you want to find a spouse, there's so many places you can go. Now, it might surprise you to find out that in the Bible, the best place to find a spouse is at the well. Uh, we've just seen it in Genesis 24. Abraham's servant finds Rebekah at the well. Uh, later in Genesis 29, Jacob meets Rachel where? At the well. And in Exodus 32, where does Moses meet his wife Zipporah? That's right, he meets her at the well. So, if you want to create a Christian dating app, here's an idea call it The Well where wrath and mercy meet. Or if you want to ask someone out or propose to them, just send them a text or tell them face to face. 10 a.m., meet me at the well. You see, friends, the well is where it all goes down. And today, guess what? Guess where we're going. That's right, we're going down to the well. The place in Genesis 24 where Abraham's servant finds a wife for his son. And we're going to see that yet again, God provides for his people. But what he provides is not a wife, so much as life itself. God provides Rebecca not for Isaac's companionship or or to or to allay his loneliness, but for his people's preservation. God promises to preserve his people. From there, we'll move on, and we'll visit another well. We'll go to John chapter 4, the place where Jesus offers a far greater relationship to a woman for whom marriage has been nothing but a tragedy. And at that well, we'll see that God does not promise a spouse, but he promises us his son. And finally, we'll ask ourselves, what wisdom might we receive from these two wells about marriage, life and love? So there's our three sections. I've worked hard on it. I hope you're proud of me. Love at the well, Jesus at the well, and then wisdom from the well. Now, Genesis can be divided into four scenes, chapter 4, each with an encounter between two people. And the first scene is right there in verses 1 to 9. Abraham and his servant. Now, when I was in my mid-twenties, my dad was driving me to the airport, and suddenly, out of nowhere, this is what he asked. Adam, when are you getting married? Now, Now, you need to understand, right, this comes after 25 years of absolute silence, and now suddenly, I'm being told, Adam, it's very important to carry on the family name. See, the truth is, many aging parents want nothing more than for their children to be married. They want their kids to be looked after. And here in Genesis 24, Abraham is an aging parent. And just like so many others, he wants his son to find a wife. But friends, I want you to realize this isn't about companionship. He's not worried about Isaac being lonely. No, no, Abraham wants to find Isaac a wife For progeny, to carry on the family name. He wants Isaac to preserve the people and promises of God. I mean, just think about it. How else will Abraham's descendants ever be a blessing to the nations if they don't even exist? No, Abraham wants to find his son a wife, not for companionship, but for survival. That's why he asks his servant to swear that he'll find Isaac a wife by placing his hand under his thighs. Now, that word thigh in verse 2 is actually a euphemism. It's a polite way of referring to the male reproductive organ. Now, now, culture, that's a pretty weird way to make a promise, isn't it? Please don't try this at home. You will be arrested. No, we make a promise by placing our hand on a Bible, as if to say, I promise on God's words. But in the ancient Near East, they would place their hand on the person's thigh, as it were, as if to say, I promise on on your future children. You see, this promise is all about preserving God's people. And notice what sort of woman the servant promises to look for. In verses 3 and 4, Isaac's wife must not be a Canaanite. She must be from among the people of God. And in verses 5 to 8, she must not take Isaac back to the land out of which God had saved their family. Friends, can you hear what Abraham is saying to his servant? Find Isaac a wife who will not just preserve my people, no, find them a wife who will preserve God's promise. Because if, if she isn't one of God's people, she will lead Isaac away from the worship of Yahweh into the idolatry of Canaan. No, find my son a woman who will promote and preserve the promises of God. And that's exactly what his servant does. Scene 2, verses 10 to 27, the servant and Rebekah. Abraham's servant, he's received his marching orders and he does what any faithful servant should do. He prays. He turns to God and pleads for God to show kindness to Abraham. Now that word kindness, we see it in verses 12, 14 and 27. That word is the word hesed. One of the most powerful words of the Old Testament. It means God's steadfast love. It is the grace that marks his covenant with Abraham and saved Lot out of Sodom. That word kindness is God's covenant faithfulness. It's his gracious commitment that I will keep my promise. And now, in this prayer, Abraham's servant is invoking that very kindness. He's praying to God God, be faithful to your covenant, preserve your people just like you said you would. Provide a wife for Isaac so that your promises and your people might live on from generation to generation. And now, having prayed, the servant devises a plan. This is the plan. He will go to the best place to find a spouse. He's going to go down to the well. And when he sees a girl come up to draw water, he'll say, "'Please lower your water jug so that I may drink.'" And if the girl responds, drink out of water, your camels also, she's the one. It's a weird plan, isn't it? I mean, what a way to find a wife. But but just like we saw when Abraham and Sarah welcomed the three angels into their household, you see, in that culture, godliness, righteousness, it was shown through hospitality. Abraham's servant, he's not just simply looking for any woman from among God's people, No, he's looking for a godly woman. And along comes Rebecca. And can I say, she proves to be everything that this servant was looking for. In verse 16, she is a virgin. She is not married. She is single. She is suitable to bear children and preserve God's promise. In verses 18 to 20, she shows herself to be godly, not just by providing the very hospitality that the servant was looking for, but by doing it quickly. You see that word quickly over and over again. She runs to provide this hospitality. She is a godly woman. And in verses 23 to 24, what does she do? She identifies herself as a daughter of Bethuel from among the people of God. It's the moment that you open the app, and it's like tick, tick, I don't know if this ticks, tick, 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 right? Like everything lines up. Yet again, God has acted in kindness towards his people. We've seen throughout Genesis 12 to 25, he, he provided a son for Abraham, but now he provides a wife for Isaac. He's not just keeping his promise, God is preserving his people. And so the servant explains everything to Rebecca. And she's excited as she invites him home to meet the family. I wonder, for some of you, what it was like to meet the family for the very first time. Maybe you went there. Her dad was holding a shotgun on the front porch. Maybe his mom smiled outwardly, but you could tell inside she was thinking, you will never be good enough for my son. Maybe her brother took it upon himself to be the enforcer. All right, hey, how are you, man? You break your heart, I'll break your neck. Well, in verses 28 to 61, we see the third scene it's an encounter between Rebecca's brother, Laban, and Abraham's servant. Now, we live in Australia in 2021, that's right. And in the modern Western world, most people, how do they marry? They marry by dating one another first. The man and the woman independently decide whether they should marry. But in the ancient Near East, and actually in many Eastern cultures today, arranged marriages are very common, and it's a whole family decision. It was very awkward growing up in my church. My grandmother used to say to her friend, that was always terrifying. You knew something was happening. And she would say to her friend, wouldn't it be great if a boy if a son from our family married a daughter from your family? And I was just thinking... You know, I have a name, right? Like, But it didn't matter to my grandmother or any parties involved, whether it was my brother, my cousin, or me. It was a collective decision. And my grandmother, the matriarch, she was speaking for our family. I had no part in this whatsoever. Well, friends, that's something of what's going on in these verses. You see, Rebecca's brother, Laban, he's assumed the role of the family spokesperson, he is speaking for Rebecca. And in this drawn out, convoluted back and forth, we see two families negotiate the marriage of their children. And just like with any Eastern wedding, even today, in verses 31 to 53, we see hospitality is extended, words are spoken, and yes, the all important one, dowries are paid. But notice exactly what the servant is saying in verses 34 to 49. He's not simply repeating the events of the last scene. I wonder if you had that moment when Cedric was reading the the Bible at, at these verses. You're like, you've already said this, right? But why is he repeating this? No, he's not simply repeating it for the heck of it. No, he's demonstrating to Laban that the Lord himself is behind this marriage. Over and over and over again, he repeats that the Lord said, the Lord gave, the Lord instructed this marriage, this union, it is of God. And that's why in verse 49, he asked Laban to extend to him, notice there's that word again, the same kindness that God had first extended to him. He's telling him, Laban, align yourself with God's covenant. Act in accordance with God's promise. Ally yourself with God's plans and purposes. And in verse 50, that's exactly what he does. A further back and forth ensues. Rebecca's family blesses her as the future mother of God's people. You see it right there. Our sister, may you become thousands upon ten thousands. May your offspring possess the city gates of their enemies. Notice, they're not singing, may you never be lonely again. They're not singing, finally you've met your other half. No, they're singing praises knowing that this marriage is not about finding a companion for Isaac primarily. This is not about marriage being an answer to loneliness. This is about preserving God's people and promise. So finally, in scene 4, verses 62 to 67, Isaac meets Rebekah. It's funny, isn't it? All these conversations have been had but the two people that haven't met of the husband and wife. He brings her into his tent. They consummate their marriage. And verse 67 closes with these beautiful words. Isaac loved her. Isn't that beautiful? Fascinating when you pause to think about it as well, for they had never met. And yet in time, Isaac grew to love her. You see, this chapter, friend shows us love at the well. But let me be very clear. This chapter is not about how to find a spouse. So please, please, don't hang around a well hoping to find a husband or wife. And please don't assume that God has promised to give you a husband or wife. God's covenant faithfulness is not shown in providing you with a spouse, God's covenant faithfulness was shown in providing you with his son. He has promised to preserve his people through every generation. He has promised to never let his people go. He has promised to build his church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. That is what he has promised in this chapter. And in Jesus, that's exactly the promise is kept. And look with me at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, the apostle Paul writes that the promises in Genesis were spoken to Abraham and to his seed that is literally his offspring and he does not say and to seeds plural as though referring to many but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ why did God provide Abraham with a son why did God provide Isaac with a wife well it wasn't so that Abraham could be happy it wasn't so that Isaac wouldn't be lonely No, God provides Abraham with a son and Isaac with a wife so that he might provide us with a saviour. He preserved his people throughout human history so that you and I get Jesus. And now Jesus invites you and me into a relationship of love that is far greater than marriage could ever be, as good as it is. In John 4, Jesus himself goes, where does he go of all places? down to the well. And in fact, he goes to the very well where Jacob will one day meet his wife Rachel in Genesis 29. And at that well, what happens? A Samaritan woman comes to draw water, just like Rebecca did all those years ago. And echoing the servant's words, Jesus says to the woman, give me a drink. Now, if you were one of Jesus' disciples and you were looking at this encounter, can I tell you, the parallel with Genesis 24 would be unavoidable. It would be striking. But that's where the similarities stop. You see, in Genesis 24, Abraham tells his servants, what does he he say? Avoid the Canaanites, go only to the people of God. But this woman in John 4, no, she is not one of the people of God. She's a Samaritan, she's an outsider. And yet instead of avoiding her, no, Jesus comes to her. He seeks her out and he offers this outsider a place within his people. Notice as well that this woman for, is a woman for whom marriage has not delivered. It's a woman for whom marriage has not satisfied. In verse 17 we learn that she's had five husbands. And the man she is now with isn't her husband. You see, we often think that marriage is the answer to all our problems, don't we? We think that it will quell our loneliness, bring us happiness and secure our future. But here is a woman for whom marriage has been nothing but a train wreck five times over. And in her time and culture, where marriage meant survival, five failed marriages, that's a death sentence social rejection, financial insecurity. But look at what Jesus promises her. Well, notice what he doesn't promise her. He doesn't promise her marriage to yet another man. That would almost be too easy. He he doesn't promise her social acceptance or financial security. Instead, he promises her something far greater. In verse 10, he offers her living water. In verse 13, He offers her eternal life. You see, Jesus promises this Samaritan woman a relationship that is far greater than marriage. In fact, He promises her the one relationship that will truly satisfy her forever. The one relationship of total acceptance and eternal security. And here's the beautiful thing, right? It doesn't matter that she's an outsider. It doesn't matter that she's a Samaritan. And can I tell you, it doesn't matter that she has had five failed marriages. Everything that this woman would otherwise seek in a marriage. Acceptance. Security. And life itself. Jesus promises it all in a relationship with him. You see, Genesis 24, God promises here to give Isaac a wife so that through his children, the world might receive Jesus. But in John 4, Jesus comes to the world and he promises to give us not a husband or wife. He promises to give us his own life. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that Jesus is offering you exactly what he offers this Samaritan woman. He invites you to meet Him at the well, as it were. And at that well, can I tell you, He will not offer you something as temporary and fleeting as marriage, as good as it may be. Marriage is a wonderful good, and the Bible celebrates it so much, but has it ever occurred to you that in the new creation, no one will marry nor be given in marriage? The Lord does not promise marriage to us. No, He promises us something far greater something far more enduring, something far more eternal. He promises us the one relationship that can deliver on everything that we so often look to marriage to provide. God does not promise us a spouse, but He has given us His Son. And in His Son we can find eternal acceptance, eternal security, eternal love, and eternal life. We've seen love at the well. We've met Jesus at the well. Now finally, let's see some wisdom from the well. Now you know, when we read the Old Testament, we should always ask ourselves, and I think as a church we're pretty good at doing this, we always ask each other, what does this Old Testament passage mean in light of Jesus? How do I read this in light of Christ? In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that the Old Testament doesn't just point forward to Jesus. We keep asking, how does this point forward to the cross? How does this point forward to Christ? Great question to ask, but the Old Testament is also there to train us in righteousness. We should also ask, how does this passage teach me to live for Jesus? And so, whilst Genesis 24 primarily shows us how God preserves His people, primarily shows us how we get Jesus in the end. Can I say, it still has some helpful wisdom about life, marriage and love. So, it is worth asking ourselves that question. What does this chapter have to teach us about how we might live for the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to the presenting issue of the chapter? And that is marriage. So, let me offer you three words of wisdom. Wisdom from the well about looking for a husband or wife. Firstly, look for a spouse among God's people. Look for a spouse among God's people. Did you notice how insistent Abraham is that his servant must find a wife for Isaac from among the people of God? And there's a very clear reason for that, right? He said it. If he finds a wife from among the Canaanites, or if Isaac returns to the land out of which God saved their family, well, what will happen to the promises of God? It will be at risk of being lost. Isaac would be at risk of leaving the people of God. And if you want to see that play out, read the life of King Solomon. That is what happens. He seeks wife from outside the people of God and his heart is taken away. That's why it's so important for Christians to marry another believer. Now, if you're not a Christian here, I can totally understand why hearing that, that sounds awfully narrow-minded. Because out of love should tear down barriers, shouldn't it? Shouldn't love bring people together, not drive people apart? After all, whatever our race, religion or creed, love is love, isn't it? I suppose that's true on one level. But if love is love, what happens when two people have fundamentally inconsistent visions of love? What if you define love differently? There you've got a problem, don't you? Because being a Christian isn't just another box you tick on a dating app. No, it's being in the deepest relationship of love with the God of the universe. It is a love that is greater than marriage itself. You see, Jesus isn't just one relationship among many and Christianity isn't just one criteria among many. No, Jesus defines love and Christianity as in following the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the check-all box, as it were. You see, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have true love. If you're not a Christian, let me be blunt, us marrying you is actually not very loving towards you. So, I'll own that, right? Because we would actually be suggesting to you that the person you need most is us. But actually, the person you need most is the Lord Jesus Christ. The most loving act we can do for you is not to enter into a relationship with you, it's to introduce you to a relationship with Jesus. Fellow Christian, there is a warning for us here in this chapter. Who we choose to marry will deeply shape our relationship with God, for better or for worse. Even another Christian, it will shape it, I can guarantee you that. And as we've seen, it will also shape the faith of our future children. Last year, I think I officiated eight weddings. That was slightly terrifying, but wonderful as well. And as you know, as a church, over the next few years, we're looking forward to welcoming children. Wonderful and terrifying as well. Because they'll all come, believe me. And we need to know what we think about kids. And it's fascinating, when you do marriage prep with couples, actually, we spend so much of our time talking about everyone other than the couple. We talk about parents and we talk about children. Well, actually, who you marry, you need to think about that in light of who you will one day father or mother It will shape the faith of our future children. That was the point of finding Isaac a wife after all, wasn't it? To preserve God's people, to preserve God's promise. But if our husband or wife draws us away from God, how in the world could we ever pass on the gospel to our sons and daughters? No, look for a spouse among God's people. Secondly, look for godliness above all else. I want you to notice that Abraham's servant, he doesn't just spin a bottle when he gets to the well and go, you, you're within the people of God, that's good enough. No, he seeks out a woman who is godly by how she extends hospitality. And that is how godliness was extended there, expressed there. In our time and culture, godliness might not be expressed in the same way, but godliness still matters. If you're a visitor right now, I'm going to give some uh, partial advice to our own congregation whether it's whether you want to buy into it or not, that's up to you, but some grace here at this point. I see a lot of people factor godliness into the equation, but they don't consider it first, and they don't consider it most. Instead, to be blunt, the first factor that far too many people consider is the other person's physical attractiveness. And let's face it, if the person is not good enough, by our standards, we dismiss them. We don't even get to the point of considering their godliness. Now, let me be clear. Song of Songs does show us that physical attraction matters. It is important. But if it is our first and primary factor, let me be clear, that is worldly. And it dehumanises our brother or sister. It reduces them to a pound of flesh and insults their creator. And if that is your tendency, you actually need to repent of that. Because you might not think of them as beautiful, but I want you to know that they are created in the image of God. Look for godliness above all else and look for it first. Look for someone who takes the gospel seriously. Look for someone who's willing to sacrifice comfort for the sake of Christ. Look for someone who, just like Abraham, walks by faith and lives by promise. And if I can extend it even more, can I suggest why don't look for them among the people you already know? Because how could you know anything about someone's godliness if you don't even know their name? There's only so much you can tell from like a picture. I find it weird that people consider a stranger they've never met on an app more than a believer they already know at church. Now I suspect, here's the reason, here's what I suspect, I suspect we don't consider people we already know for two reasons. Number one, we think that we already know them well enough to say no, which generally isn't true. And secondly, we're afraid of what happens to the friendship if it doesn't work out. If you already know the person, you know they're godly and you have some level of attraction to them as a whole person, why not? If God calls us to look among his people and look for godliness above all else, then I suspect it would only be wise to look among the people you already know. Otherwise, don't complain. Because there are a lot of godly people out there and they are what they love the Lord dearly. And as far as I'm concerned, sometimes the only reason why people say no is because of that first factor that they've And if that's us, I think that's something we need to repent of. We need to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as the Lord would have us. We need to see them as the Lord would have us. Finally, look to Jesus. Now, notwithstanding this extended excursus, if you read this chapter and think only about finding a spouse, you've totally missed the point of the passage. Well, the whole point about God providing Isaac with Rebekah is so that he might provide us with Jesus. And here's the reality, even for those of us who are longer term singles, we might not have a spouse. Can I tell you, you've got something far greater than that. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfilment and the goal of Genesis 24. So when you look for someone to marry, you should expect them to be looking more and more like Jesus, but please, do not expect them to be Jesus. Don't expect them to be perfect. Be gracious and patient with them as they seek to be a godlier person, be merciful with their sins, forgiving of their past. My gosh, if God has not counted our sins against us, how can we hold our sins against each other? No spouse will ever give you the security and love that only Jesus can give you. Was in the end, spoiler alert, Rebecca dies. Isaac dies. And just like the Samaritan woman, not even five husbands can save us. Do not look to any man or woman to be your saviour. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my favourite missionaries in church history is a man called Adniram Judson. It's a fascinating name. If you want to name your child something, Adniram is a great name. He was the first American missionary to Myanmar or Burma and he suffered a great deal in life. In 1810, he wrote a letter to the father of the woman he was courting, that was the language at the time, and her name was Nancy Hasseltine. It's a beautiful name, don't laugh at it. Let me read to you the letter that he wrote her father. You'll see some of it on the screen. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of her missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution and perhaps, perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Saviour from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Brothers, there is a proposal Turns out, I I suppose he would have said yes, but she ended up going. Nancy ended up dying on the mission field, never to see her father again. But I read that and I think to myself, maybe not the most romantic, but you know what? There is a man who deeply loved his wife. But even more than his wife, there is a man who loved his God. There is a man who looked to the Lord Jesus Christ more than anything else in this world. He saw the greater mission. He saw the greater gift. He saw the only Saviour. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. He is the fulfilment. He is the goal of Genesis 24. The servant met Rebecca at the well. The Samaritan woman met Jesus at the well. And we meet Jesus today not at any well, but at the cross. For it is there that Jesus didn't just come to meet us, no, it is there that He sealed His love for us at the cost of His own life. It is there, on the cross of Christ, where Jesus died to win His bride. Let me pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we repent of those times where we have looked to other relationships of this world, good though they may be, gifts though they may be, we have looked to them as if they might be our God. And so often, God, we fail to see the giver. We fail to see our God as the greatest gift of all. May we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the One who is our everything, the one who preserves his people, the one who keeps his people, the one who preserves his promise through every generation. And may we, the people of God, declare that we are his people, sealed in love by his blood. For Jesus' sake, amen.